Hello, friends. Welcome back to Hit Different. If it's the first time you've listened to us, I'm going to say welcome back because you're like an old friend. Who's a friend? Just a podcast listener I haven't met yet. That's what I'm talking about. Welcome to Hit Different, your weekly music culture podcast with me, Mikey Carl, Sosefia Moli, and special guest today, Brett Oten. Bit of a gear shift for us. I like it. Look at our range. Coming up on this episode, we're going to be talking about no music on a dead planet, current sort of push. Once again, it's all, all up to the artists to do this thing, taking their music off Spotify and streaming services. So is going to be examining Kendrick Lamar's new record, Hot Damn, and we're going to get into Brett Oden's career, Brett Oden principal for Brett Oden solicitors. All right, my friends, we are on. So see, how are you? Knocking boots. Knocking boots, aka meeting deadlines and doing edits on different things, but it's good. I love being able to spend a morning chopping it up with yourself and just a range of fine guests. We've been we've been knocking it out the park. I know we mostly get lawyers and solicitors on this show. However, um, yeah. let's, uh, we said no more lawyers, no more solicitors. Let's make an exception. Brett Oten, how are you, Brett? You're in, up in Newtown today, is that right? Uh, well, I'm actually in Cronulla. Uh, like everyone, my uh, my. Um uh, work habits have changed in the pandemic. I live in Cronulla, which is, you know, in southern Sydney. I've got a little office here now, uh, as well as our main office in Newtown, and I'm uh, I'm working from here today. Terrific. How are you digging on the, uh, the the home office vibes? Well, it's not a home office. It's just a little one-man uh, office that's closer to home than my normal office. That's incredibly boring, but uh, there we are. That's where I am. It's a different headspace you're getting to even the the act of going outside walking and getting fresh air like i've not done that yet today i have i'm recovering from uh keyhole surgery on my knee so it's, the, even the concept of going outside i'm kind of like yeah i'm my, at the moment my vibe is the the vietnam vet in the simpsons he's got like one bung arm and he's on he's on crutches that's my whole vibe so here we are friends let's talk about stuff after this bit of music Sexy. Thanks, Courtney, our producer. He's doing a sterling job this year. No music on a dead planet. Australian musicians are continuing to join international artists in support of the No Music on a Dead Planet campaign, which launched last week, so two weeks ago on Earth Day. And like, good to see Earth Day, I think, has responded to sort of the criticism of it being quite, I guess, token and a little bit showy. And these things are sort of seem to be more ongoing. Also, the Environmental Music Prize came out, and that's there's been heaps of great coverage of that. Jess Ribeiro is going to be on our podcast, uh, I believe, next week. She's been chatting chatting all about that. But yeah, this 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 whole thing, right? Artists are removing some of their music from streaming services, including Bajira. Am I saying that right? Bajira, Kevin Parker, Nick Albrook, Jake Taylor, Anna Leno, something for Kate, Jimmy Barnes. Like, there's quite a, quite a long list, and people that have been speaking out as well. Montaigne, Regurgitator. In accordance with hashtag Save Our Songs, the dying song is now on the endangered list and will be removed from all shows this month. It's one of my most beloved songs, said Montaigne. So I, I like where this is going. Ella Hooper, I sort of announced the initiative on Instagram. Ella's always going to bat for the industry, for the little guy. I'm now retiring a song, a song that I played almost every gig, Daily Detritus. It's a favourite opener of all my solo shows. To emphasise how these songs are at risk, everything, everyone is at risk on a planet that is in distress. So my take on this is that it's great that we are talking about this and it's continuing to push it to the, to the forefront, um, especially you know, with this sort of uh, an environmental or climate change election, a climate crisis election. 
at the same time, I'm a bit skeptical. Uh, skeptical is the wrong word. I'm a, I'm a little bit, what's the word? It's, it's a, it does feel a little ham fisted. And I would love a Kevin Parker to come out and take off the less I know, the better, you know, a song that everyone's going to miss. Uh, these, these songs, I just feel like it sort of creates, it's trying to create a vacuum where people go, where is this thing? But the absence of it, I don't think is having, will, will have a, a big effect until there are really big songs that people can't get to. Kind of like how Prince for years didn't have his music up on, on streaming services. Brett, what do you think about all this? I don't have a better idea, but I don't necessarily love it. I know that activism is meant to be uncomfortable and it's not supposed to be easy or make people feel good, but personally, we know we're under threat. We know everything's under threat. And personally, in circumstances where we're all under threat, I'd like there to be more art, not less, available to people. So it's not an initiative that is particularly compelling to me. I don't necessarily have a better idea. So it's very easy to criticise something. It's a lot harder to proactively come up with something better. But I don't love the idea that we get rid of art in any circumstances. Especially for someone in your field, who I think uh, quite often you ask artists super early in their career, is this a career or is this a hobby? So you sort of put it to them, like, how serious are you about making art as your sort of, you know, your raison d'etre? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm not making that comment as a as an industry comment or as a legal comment or anything like that. I think, you know, of course we're under threat from climate change, everything is, um, but art is under threat from many other avenues as well. It's under threat from a funding point of view, it's under threat in America, particularly for books being banned and 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 things like that and and uh i i very rarely would think that less art is a solution to a problem rather than more art <laughs> yeah good take so say that's actually a really good point i feel like i was because i've been seeing a lot of this popping up on social media recently like artists in the t-shirts artists posting their their support and, and obviously we're now starting to see people actually retiring their music but um, I didn't quite think about it from Brett's point of view, and now that I am, I'm just like that. That's a really good point. <laughs> like you know, we've seen in other moments of crisis, generally that prompts musicians and artists to be creating in the face of it. I can't poke the bear and be like, oh well, you shouldn't be doing this, and have absolutely nothing to offer as an alternative. Like, I guess we're all just operating in our own little in our own little chambers and reaching the communities the best we know how. And, you know, for, for some artists like Montaigne or another Hooper to be like, I'm taking out the most popular, or, you know, the, the song that a lot of my fans would recognize me for, like thinking about their demographics as well. Some of these artists might have slightly older demographics too, that would like really take it to heart if they were just like, well, does this mean that this song is now gone forever? Like, what does that mean? Maybe that's an element too, where they, they know their fan base and they're like, this This could actually be a really good way of at least getting people to think about these issues on that level. Totally. And I, I think if, if, I was, if I was reading one song here that was like, oh, I, I, I stream that song, you know, I listen to that song a lot, then it would have resonate more with me and I'd feel a bit more like, oh, actually, this is a really strong idea. I, again, like the people doing all this, fucking good on them. They, you know, yeah, they're, uh, yeah, yeah. They're spending their time probably giving a lot of their time pro bono. Thank you, Brett. Uh, <laughs> oh, sorry. Fans can save their songs by taking the pledge on Green Music Australia's website. So you take a pledge. It says if a 1,000 people take the pledge across April and May, we can save the songs that are in get danger now and make a case to federal parliament for strong action right away. So it's all leading towards something, but I guess 
soften these things. If it's a sort of a muddy message, then it doesn't quite land. And for me to take a pledge, I mean, I'm not going to become a born again virgin. Like I'm quite the, the take a pledge thing feels a bit um like I don't know, sort of a, a slight sort of a go figure American kind of uh, attempt at sort of I don't it's not selectivism, but it's 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 it feels like a kind of forced activism. As, as you said, Brett, like, I, I haven't offered a, a great solution to all this. And these people, the artists that are, that are doing all this, you know, are, are doing it from a very good place. And even wearing T-shirts and putting it on their Instagram, and, you know, we are, it's pushing a very, very good message. So uh, I think it's just, um, it comes down to the fact that we've got, you know, we've got two political parties who still haven't quite, you know, grabbed the bull by the horns. And the Greens are showing the way, but the Greens obviously don't have enough power yet. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it does feel like we, we just need someone to sort of come along and even to, if someone talked about this in parliament, that, that, that'd be a, a bigger thing. In your career, Brett, I'm just trying to think, um, music getting removed from streaming services and all this kind of, is there any kind of like legal minefields people come across with, with um, their labels saying, Hey, this is bringing us cash as well. What are you doing? You know, this, this was an issue, uh, that came up. Uh, most recently during the kind of Neil Young, Joe Rogan dispute relating to Spotify. And, and that is the reality is that many, many artists don't own their own music. And so an artist may well say that they're going to remove their music from a streaming service for whatever reason. And if they don't own it, that will not be a decision that's completely in their hands. It will be the decision of the owner of their music, which is usually their record company, and maybe that uh, record label will respect their wishes and maybe they won't. And and often that will depend on how uh, much power they have as an artist. That is how, how big they are as an artist. If a record label was to tell their artist, we're going to take this music down and you're not going to make any money for it, they'd be pretty pissed, I think. Um, but if it comes from the artist asking the label then, you know, this, this, it's, you know, this sort of comes from a more uh, moralistic place and, and, you know, more sort of... The kind of opposite is the case there because the bigger you are as an artist, the, the less financial incentive the label has to take your music down, but the more relationship incentive they have to keep you happy. So how they balance those competing interests, that's something that has to play out. Have Tame Impala taken any music? So Kevin Parker supports this. So I'm wondering whether he's actually taken any music down. I'm not trying to pick on Kevin. I just know that'd be the one that would have the most power, you know, out of, out of all these names here. And another point I want to make, my friends, is uh, Pussy Riot. Everyone around the world knows them because they commit to the bit. They'll go to jail. They'll come out and do exactly the same thing again. They really love rattling the cage and, and making statements. And this feels like like no one's missing Regurgitator's future is plastic song, unfortunately. You know, they did the exclamation mark song of some formerly known as or or songs with um you know that have big strings and people talk about and you know you put on when you get the aux cable at a party these are the songs that we need aux cable at the party songs yeah look i don't really think you can compare pussy right to this kind i mean i'm not criticizing activism i think the activism is really well intentioned and but you know pussy right frequently put their life and liberty at risk yeah. and that is a that is a whole other level of Exactly. So they commit to the bit. Yeah, it's more than a bit. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's 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 their life and their liberty, and that's uh, that is uh, you know a completely different strata of of activity. Agree. It's a comedy expression. Commit to the bit, but I like it. It's good. <laughs> Feel a bit of good tension here. Uh, so yeah, hashtag save our songs. French. You can go to Green Music Australia's uh, website. You can take the pledge. All these things. I'm going to do it today because I feel like I've just ragged on it a little bit. So uh, yeah, do these things. <laughs> And, you know, and just 
the more we talk about it, the more we sort of put this message yeah. forward, is that there'll be moderates and there'll be people out there listening to this even and, and seeing what we do on socials and going, oh, yeah, maybe I should actually vote Greens. You know, I've never thought about voting Greens. All those little things along the way incrementally that can add up to, add up to more. Hey, uh, if you like this podcast and you do because you're listening to it, you can support Hit Different and other Mushroom podcasts covering Australian music by becoming a subscriber on Apple Podcasts. You get early access. It's pretty sweet. And yeah, you basically kind of feel super, super uh, into Like Honestly, So Says has the best team in this whole industry. So just listen up okay, every week. Don't, forget me. Don't forget air me. me out like that. Don't air me out like that. <laughs> forget me. Just uh, <laughs> listen for So the Voice. And I want to forget like Brett Oden. In just a moment, we are going to be talking about Kendrick Lamar's new album, Mr. Morale, and the big steppers, big energy, mm-hmm. big vibe around it after mm-hmm. this. So say I've heard one song on the Kendrick Lamar record. I love it. I've watched the deep fake uh, clip. Have you watched the deep fake clip yet, Brett? I have not. I've heard the single, but I haven't watched the clip yet, I'm afraid it's to say. Good. It's a trip. So when you do get a chance to watch it, enjoy. I went in blind with it. Like I feel like a lot of people did. All I, all I saw was like a the screen grab of just Kendrick Lamar looking very handsome in his, I was going to say older age. He's not that old, but like he's got that very like seasoned, well-rested look of a rapper who has just decided to not be part of any of the mess, which I love that for him. This record, by the time where in your ears it will have been out for a full weekend at which point I would have spent most of that weekend off grid listening to it. Mr Morale and the Big Steppers is the long-awaited new record from Kendrick Lamar. I feel like even if you're not into hip-hop you'll know how big this record is I I feel for popular music period. It's very rare that you have an artist who is part of like the pop culture zeitgeist of the last what 20 odd years who can just be consistently dropping really culture-affecting projects, win a freaking Pulitzer for one of them, winning a Pulitzer for not even the one that I would have thought was Pulitzer-worthy, I might add, and then take a bunch of years off and now come back with such a massive record. It's the last album he's releasing as part of Top Dog Entertainment, which again is another big thing if you're in hip-hop circles. That's the label that he came up with from the beginning. It's an amicable breakup he decided to branch off and and do his own thing launch his new production house which is not just going to be for music but from what I can gather it's nurturing culture it's nurturing community of filmmakers creatives as well as producers musicians all of that kind of thing so it's exciting times to be a Kendrick Lamar fan it's exciting times to be Kendrick Lamar no doubt but yeah I wanted to to get into it a little bit because first of all for, for you two as music fans do you remember the last time like there was so much kind of hype around an album that had literally no lead up to it. I mean, we've seen The Heart Part 5, which is the song we were talking about just before. That's not even on the album. These are standalones. Like that's a series that he's been doing for, for years now. So I can't even remember the last time that there was a record that people were just like, I don't even care what's on it. It's that artist. I know that I'm going to be dropping absolutely everything to get to. The Aston Shuffle made this great point on these people a few years ago. There was so mm. much hype for Daft Punk's Random Access Memories that on iTunes there was a five-star review and it hadn't even come out yet. And this person's like, this is the yeah, greatest true. album I've ever heard. <laughs> I don't even care what's on it. Hadn't even dropped. That and the other, the Beyonce record. Yeah, true. His formation. Is it, was that called formation? It was the Beyonce record. Lemonade. Lemonade, yeah. I mean, I feel like, did that just jump at us? Did that just bump? Did I can't remember. Appear? I think it may have did. Might have had a hold she's, up. She's done a few surprise drops. 
But there's not, there's not even been any... Has it happened you know, in a while? Yeah, like there hasn't even been any cover... Like there weren't any visuals, there weren't, like there were nothing to lead up to this one, which I think is super interesting for an artist to do in the music climate right now. Like obviously this is only working if you're a Kendrick Lamar or if you're someone massive. Like no one's going to give a shit if it's like a small indie. Like no one's going to care, quite frankly. But yeah, what do we think? Do we think it's cool that an artist can still get away with doing it? I think it's great, but I, I think you're right, so say, that you can only do this at a certain level. So, you know, if Taylor yeah. Swift changes something on her Instagram, everyone loses their mind. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and I think that kind of stuff is great. You know, I'm, I'm someone who doesn't want to see a movie trailer before I see the movie because yeah. I don't want it to be ruined. So I think a, yeah. uh, a surprise album from an artist that you love is really fantastic, but you know, if I put out a surprise album tonight, no one cares. So that's fine, you know. I mean, they could do because they might not be expecting it. They'd be like, oh, damn. <laughs> okay. I'm going to check that out. Just called The, the Principle. Yeah. <laughs> Drop a hip-hop record. Yeah. <laughs> it is fascinating, though. Like, it's become a bit of a running, like, a running joke online. Like, so when the album cover dropped for this, it features Kendrick Lamar. And his two children and his lovely fiance, I believe. Not many people knew that he has two children. They knew that he had one, but the new baby, again, he's a very private man. Not anymore. The amount of dissecting of this one image that has been happening online is absolutely crazy. And I don't know many other artists where fans have been like, oh, if you look at all the white pieces on the wall, then that represents like white, you know, whiteness invading traditionally black spaces. And if you look at the way that, you know, he's got like the the wreath of thorns on his head, but he's he's got a gun still stuck in his back pocket. Like that means that, you know, you're always fighting even though, and it's just like, oh my God, it's a Kendrick Lamar is somewhere in Ghana right now, just chilling. He's just hanging out, having a good time being rich and like living (laughs) in his art. Like sometimes it doesn't need to be that deep, but I I'm here for it. I'm absolutely here for it. Do you feel like more big artists should be doing stuff like this? Do you feel like there's a lot that's been lost? Yeah, this, I mean, we, we live in the age of the overshare. So if somebody comes along and just hits us with this piece of art that's fully formed, I think it's a wonderful way to, to get served a whole meal. You know, we all like snacking, but snacking doesn't fill you up. Yeah, I'd love if more artists did, did, did things like this and just and just came back at us because it's almost like a surprise baby. I've been pregnant this whole time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and all of a sudden, they, you know, they, they present something like that. I think too... And I think feel like we've all earned this in the last two years of, yeah. of going through what we've all gone through. You know, it's been fucking tough for everyone, no matter what situation you're in. So to have these kind of things come along, it's a real treat. I do, I do feel for everyone on the label and everyone like in the wider <laughs> chain of things because it would be, a, it would have been a freaking nightmare this week just making sure that everything is rolling out exactly as it should be. Mm. Like I think Spotify fucked up and accidentally leaked that the heart part five was coming out before it had even hit the streaming service. So I think that that may have slightly pushed things a little bit, Yeah. but it just shows that I guess you can be on your P's and Q's right down to the T, but all it takes is just like one little thing. These things always stuff up too. I mean, I'm going to say all day he'd launch something online, uh, uh, one of his uh, on the streaming services and it's stuffed up and it just completely just fall fell down on the same day. And he just put up, first time I ever heard, he goes, oh, this has all gone to shit, but 
Hashtag too blessed to be stressed. I just maybe go, oh, that's really nice. Too blessed to be stressed. <laughs> it's like that's a, an attitude we can all we can all take uh, with us. Absolutely. I love the crown of thorns stuff. is is really fascinating. Obviously, this, this is not to Jesus then, and a resurrection. Um, also, someone being crucified. Like he's almost getting ahead of the critics in, in a way too. Because think about how his trajectory, like somehow, like Good Kid, Mad City, that from from there, which was already really really strong, he's just gone up and up and up and. He, Arguably, Pimp and Butterfly and Dam are on level pegging slash Pimp is probably could be higher. I think so. This is what you were insinuating earlier. Yeah. But nothing he's done has, has dropped this incredible, um, this, this quality control and even seeing him at the Super Bowl doing, doing the do, like everything in, in his life. There'd be so many times where people are like, you know what? That's going to cost too much money, Kendrick. Or maybe not, dude. And he's yeah. obviously just stuck to his guns and said, in the same way our guest last week, Brett, um, Janaya Turner, she's the, used to um, be the arcade fire manager and she had this idea with the band doing all this like uh, interesting for reflectors, doing these like, chalk drawings all over the world, just these chalk drawings appearing overnight to echo the cover. And she was in these really intense conversations with boardrooms with these sort of like, stuffy label bigwigs. Who doesn't know that? Anyway, she just stuck to her guys and absolutely insisted. This was what the band wants. And yeah. in, in the end, it all, she's like, she's like, there was things like, what if it rains? <laughs> this is chalk. Like all these things you had to think about. True. And true. anyway, and ended up executing this amazing. And I remember it just overnight. I remember the, it now. Grave yeah. Street. It was so cool. It was like, oh my god, this is the oh, okay. Fine. Got people talking, and it was all well, pretty much. They put out one single, but that that the element of surprise and that kind of intrigue and everything, just drawing it towards the artistry, yeah. is incredible. Right. In your experience, have you ever helped? Because you would get, you'd be privy to sort of albums before they come out, and sort of in terms of like publishing and all kinds of aspects of your job. What are some of the things you've been involved? Oh, with, true, um, that true. Have been super exciting, and you've had to not tell anybody about, and you've seen them sort of roll out. Well, we're not necessarily um, involved in those kind of marketing decisions unless there's legal aspects to it. But of course, you hopefully love the music of the artists that you work with, and often you hear things in advance and you really love them and you can't wait to see how they are received or you know maybe you're working on the first um avalanches album and there's five thousand uh, samples on it and you've got to try and clear them <laughs> before the record comes out or or maybe you think there's ten thousand samples but you've only heard about five thousand i'm exaggerating of course but um yeah so that that can be uh that can be pretty exciting slash challenging in those circumstances were you part of the avalanches? That that that's the sampling. Tell, tell us about that. Uh, yeah, at that time I acted for Modular before it was owned by Universal, and they signed the Avalanches. So we we were involved in that record blowing up. Mm. Consistently talking to the band about what samples were on, and they would say give you the list, and then people would say, "Well, make claims about other samples that they." were not on the list because they didn't think anyone would work them out and and <laughs> and you know that was pretty uh pretty interesting time but you know i i love that album uh, I, i'm unscarred by my experiences of working on that album i love it what are you doing this wednesday uh i i don't know what, what are you offering me Mike? <laughs> i'm saying if you were to come to adelaide where i'm getting flown over for a junket with the age to review the avalanches playing since i left you in full with the adelaide symphony orchestra for illuminate I reckon they could find Brett Oden plus one on the list after everything we've done for them. Well, that is very exciting. Um, we should perhaps <laughs> talk about that in a different forum. I agree. I agree. This is exciting, though. And, uh, yeah, tickets still available, my friends. 
Very cool. Oh man, that, that's a big thing to have gone through. I'm not as obviously. I'm not as up with the uh, what's what's happening in Adelaide on a week to week basis as I should be. <laughs> but it's the only Australian show where they're doing this, so they're really you know they're telling it, making Adelaide cool. Adelaide is cool. Adelaide alive. So goes there a bit. She loves it. Yeah, I'm from there. I won't take any South Australian slander. You're going to come on, on, on Wednesday. Actually, we're, we're losing the crowd now. So it's becoming a bit too inside baseball. Can you just bring us up a bit up to date with some other stuff that Kendrick's been sort of busying himself with? So he's, yeah, when we say he's been off-grid and low-key, he's still been being creative. Um, obviously, he was one of the main masterminds behind the incredibly successful Black Panther compilation record that came out. He also has appeared on uh, Baby Keem's record, Melodic Blue. Baby Keem, for those who don't know, is a very talented new rapper um, who was also... Kendrick Lamar's cousin and also protege. It's the first release from the PG Lang house, which is his new, you know, production umbrella, which is really exciting. Track one in the Grammy, which is awesome. So setting setting the young folks up already. Um, so he's been getting busy, you know. Obviously, we, we also saw him at the Super Bowl, popping up alongside 50 Cent, Dr. Dre, Eminem, Snoop Dogg, and Mary J. Blige. Again, I went into that blind as well. I was just like, I don't want to hear anything about it. I saw the ad, but I was like, I just need to immerse myself in this. And seeing him perform, I was just like, oh, when, when he finally decides to come back, it's going to be a moment. When the Heart Part 5 dropped and we saw this incredible music video that does, as you mentioned before, use uh, deepfake technology in a really interesting way, I was like, this is exciting because A, it's something really different it's demonstrating just how tight he is still as a performer, but also what we heard on that track might not be what the album sounds like, and that's really exciting to me. And there's every chance that he has, yeah, he'll he, he put out a record that's completely different to the, the you know the single that he's dropped. Just... There's rumours this is going to be a double album, so the, the first side of it will be wholly you know, Kendrick Lamar, new material, and the second half, could be full of collaborations with established artists, but also artists who he's planning on working with further on into his new chapter. So again, just seeing it, seeing someone like him totally untethered and doing what he wants to do, I'm, I'm here for it. I, I think even if he wasn't a rapper, I'd still be here for it because I'm like, that's someone who's got complete creative control, yep. you know, yep. hasn't been influenced uh, by a label or anything. I'm wondering because he's being obviously keeping busy with fatherhood and um, a lot of us, when we went through lockdowns, etc., we were not as, I guess, effectively creative. So, like, I've spoken to a lot of our skegs, myself as a writer, I, I wrote a, some creative, a creative piece that was just absolute shit. <laughs> That's because I wasn't hanging out with people each day and, and, you know, coming in and the interaction and all that stuff you, you, you get from, uh, you know, living a quote-unquote normalish life. So I'm wondering whether, whether he has scrapped some work or whether he just, while he was in, in all the lockdowns and everything we went through, no touring, whether he just, like, somehow just stayed at the top of his game. So I think it's just going to be great to, to listen and, you know, and obviously now you can sort of move, move away and, and come back to work and go, was this good? Is this good? You know, should I put this out? And he's decided yes. So I'd love to know if there's like just vaults of material, you know, mm. like Dr. Dre level vaults. Dr. Dre, pr Prince level. Very cool. Hey, friends, in a moment, we're going to be talking to Brett Oden, principal uh, solicitor at Brett Oden Solicitors. But uh, we will tell you this, uh, you can subscribe, good. You can check out other Mushroom Podcasts, like some of my best work. 
with Jane Rocker. That's a great podcast. 180 Grams with moi. Uh, one guitar with Alex Gow, where they sent a guitar all around Glasgow to Paul Kelly. And they just got everyone to write songs on it and, and pass the guitar and write a song on it. Really, really quite a beautiful concept and uh, really well executed. In a moment, Brett Oten. That moment has come. We are here with Brett Oden. I like doing this podcast. It's actually gets me really on the game. It feels good. Friends, uh, Brett Oden's arguably, arguably, arguably Australia's leading music lawyer. So we're going to talk to you, Brett, about your career in law and how you got into law and why you chose music specifically. Tell us, sir. I studied law for no reason other than I wanted to go to university and I thought it would be interesting. I didn't have any conception of what being a lawyer might be like or I just thought, well, you know, I'd like to go to uni and I don't like the sight of blood, so maybe I'll be a lawyer. That sounds pretty interesting. Um, you know, music was a huge part of my life before, you know, when I was at school and when I went to university and it was a large part of my social life going out to see bands. It never occurred to me that you could be a music lawyer and so I went and became a worked in a big corporate law firm um, in Sydney and while I was doing that I was going to see bands a lot I, I wanted to get more involved in the music industry I started managing a band I started writing for the street press and other magazines got to know a lot of people in the music industry my peers who might have needed some legal help were pretty intimidated by their idea of what a lawyer was and and how they dressed and and I thought wow if I could combine uh, my love of music with my career that might be a better fit for me than um, working in a big corporate law firm so I decided that that's what I would do and I set up my own law firm and uh, many many years later I'm still doing it so uh, proved to be a good decision. Who were who you managing? Which band? I managed a band that you have undoubtedly never heard of called The Welcome Mat um, in the late okay, 80s, early 90s in Sydney. This is pre-Triple J going national, so um, the infrastructure was very different for indie bands in those times, but I learned a lot doing that, uh, had a lot of fun, learned that I didn't want to be a manager, and uh, <laughs> but, that, but that was good. It was great to be, you know, as someone with no musical talent, uh, writing and managing was a great way to kind of get more involved and learn more about the music industry and feel like I was part of it in some small way. Musos then probably didn't have a lot of money though, so we, you're getting into this thinking, I'm going to have to charge people lawyer fees, and these are musicians perhaps that don't have much money. I, I this is a, sort of a badly worded question, but... Did, were you um, a little reticent to get into to law thinking, oh, I, I want to look after musicians, but I need to make bank? How did all that play out? At the time that I set up my own practice, I did not have any kind of financial commitments. Like I didn't have a mortgage. I didn't have a partner. I didn't have kids. So the cost of of failure was pretty low for me. And uh, at that time, doing something, I, I mean, I'd learnt enough to know that I would spend a lot of time at work over the rest of my life. I would rather spend that time doing something that was interesting to me and felt a little less like work. So uh, the financial considerations were not, rightly or wrongly, were not top of mind when I made that decision. 
And what are some of the first sort of uh, the first pieces of legal work you did for for musicians and bands, and sort of interesting things along the way that you're obviously just accruing knowledge and. When I uh, set up my own firm, I, I'd been involved as a writer or as a manager for quite a few years, so I had a lot of friends who were in bands, and this is in the early '90s, and so I became I, I went from being a friend of my friends to lawyer and friend of my friends yeah. and it was a lot of artists so at that point the artists I started working with on day one were artists like UMI and the Meanies and Magic Dirt uh, oh. and Daisy Grinders, um, the Jackson Code so uh, you know your listeners may or may not have heard of those bands but that was sort of I basically started representing my friends the hard-ons um, small independent record labels it was great and it remains to a lot of fun, you know, a long way down the track. I was just going to say, uh, on that, like, Hard-Ons fucking killed it at the APRA Awards the other week. Oh, I got my life living. So good, so good. Not saying that, you know, I am a legal mind, because I am not. But isn't it funny how we kind of fall into some of these industry positions in this way? Like, you, you said that you've... You know, you started representing your friends and like, but that's kind of half the reason why I got into, well, why I fell into becoming a music journalist. Like I love music and I knew I wanted to be involved in it, but I went from just being a friend of musicians to then all of a sudden having to write all of their shit for them. Being that port of call, like Mikey, do you feel like you had similar experiences? Like once people knew what you could do, they were just like, oh, can we just like, could we, could we get some free advice? Could, could you, could you just write this little bio for us? Could you? A little bit. Could you just, I, I, could you come the, review our gear? Could you come? Could you come? <laughs> I always like to just, you know, make sure people feel good, but also that they know that I will be very honest with them. Yeah, about, for about real. Art, you Straight know, up. And often will go a little harder on uh, local bands just because, you know, you want to keep them honest and, and yeah. keep them, keep things popping. Yeah. And my first, interesting, my first ever one I did for Impress, uh, a glass broke behind me from the second floor and shattered and like landed about two meters behind me. And so, all this could have been over before it began. But, <laughs> but I, I think your point's a really good one, Sose, because, you know, most people in the music industry, even if it doesn't look like it down the track, they're in there because they, they just loved music so much that they wanted to find a way in. And, and whatever you, whatever it is that you want to do, whether it's a journalist or a, or a lawyer or a manager, the music industry probably doesn't need another one of you. No. And so you just have to force your way in, no matter, like, no, you just have to find a spot for yourself and often, you know, believing in, in someone or an artist or seeing something in an artist that someone else doesn't see and, and being prepared to work at that, whether that's yeah. as a lawyer or a manager or a writer, is your way in. You know, you just got to totally. be, you're, if you're really excited about something and you're really determined to do it, you can find a space for yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. Brett, you mentioned uh, avalanches earlier, which is super, super interesting. Was that the kind of the, the thing that put you on the map in a way or what are some, some of the early, early days work that you did that, how people go, oh, Brett Odin, this guy's got it. Uh, we'll go way back into history now, but I, I was a happy beneficiary of the changes in the music industry wrought by Nirvana. So at the point when I started and I acted for bands like Magic Dirt and the Meanies and, and, and UMI, the kind of major label traditional structures of 
the music industry were not interested in bands like that. They were, there was a completely separate universe of independent labels and independent promoters, and I lived in that universe. I had a whole lot of peers who were, you know, trying to make it as a lawyer or a manager or booking the Lansdowne Hotel or writing for the street press. And Nirvana completely changed the equation where an alternative band became the biggest band in the world. And then, of course, major labels wanted more of those. You know, they're bigger artists at that time and no disrespect to these artists of bands like Noiseworks. And, and they didn't have people in the building who understood those kind of artists. And so, you know, people who worked at community radio or people who booked venues suddenly were in demand to be A&R people. And, and basically a whole generation rose up because of that band into the more traditional music industry. And I was the lucky beneficiary of, of that, but the first band that I acted for that became hugely commercially successful was Silverchair. And they engaged me because they were fans of Magic Dirt. They engaged me as their lawyer. They became obviously extremely successful very quickly. And that fooled people into thinking that I knew what I was talking about because I was <laughs> associated with them. So that was very <laughs> beneficial to my career and, and that opened a lot of opportunities for me with artists who were, you know, also successful, but who I didn't have a prior personal relationship with because okay. of that uh, reflected glory, you know? Even hanging out with you now, you're not a lawyer guy. You know what I mean? Like it's just like it's a good hang. Uh, tell us about an early sil- silver chair moment where you had to re- really, you know, stick up for the little guy, and and had a, and kind of teeth gnashing and you know sleepless nights and you know, seven yeah. Well, you know, when I when I met met Silver Chair, which was so they they won the SBS demo competition, and I think I spoke to their parents within a couple of days of that innocent criminals they were back then. yes that's true uh and they changed their name because of ben harper's band they were only 14 years old they were going to school in newcastle their parents unsurprisingly had no exposure to the music industry at all and they literally had kind of every label every publisher and every manager in the country trying to beat their door down and so the first thing you've got to try and do in that circumstance is is kind of give them a frame of reference and give them some information about the industry so that they can try to make decisions that are um, the right ones for, for the band's career, but, but more importantly at that age that are the ones that hopefully will see their kids emerge in good shape after whatever happens. Over the years, acted for many, um, many young artists and it's very exciting when things like that happen and it's also pretty challenging for the families often. So you're just trying to yeah. guide them through that process. He's still tight with Daniel Johns now. He's having a very, very rough time. I, had, I, I still act for Ben and Chris, but Daniel has separate representation now and I'm a huge yeah. Daniel fan. He's a great guy and I, you know, I hope he continues to make the music he wants to make. Ben's only released a new single. This week or like last a couple week? Of, or yeah, last week or something. Good for them. How are you separating your time and like making sure each of your clients had enough time when something like Silverchair is just like, yeah, yeah, this behemoth that comes along? At that time, my firm was me. (laughs) Now my firm has 12 lawyers. So, um, it's very different now than it is, than it was then. Yeah, that sometimes uh, projects come along that they just, 
you know, explode very quickly and, and you've just got to work really hard and do the best job you can. And in my job, the competing demands of lots of work and limited amounts of time, one of the biggest challenges that I and my colleagues have, but I don't think that's any different to promoter who's trying to get a festival together or a manager whose artist is taking off it having lots of interesting and challenging work and not quite enough time to do it in the scheme of problems that you might have is certainly not the worst one yeah yeah, yeah. it's great to be busy isn't it uh, you've represented cold chisel human nature ice house i was my ice house is my first my favorite god band. Uh, give us an ice house story if you can well i personally my firm represents ice house but i personally do not represent my esteemed colleague Dave Orwell has always done Ice House's work, and you know I had the, I bought that first record when I was fifteen years old as well, and I love it. And so I can't quite believe <laughs> that we do work for people that I was such fans of. But but Dave has um, has very competently handled their work for many years. Mm. Oh. how do you stay abreast of sort of precedences and landmark rulings in the music industry? Because it is such a fast-paced kind of dynamic industry that constantly changing. That we spoke about the Neil Young and Joe Rogan stuff. Things like that would have been this whole legal minefield for for, for Neil Young or, or for his label. And there's there who who has the power? All this kind of stuff. How do you yes to stay on top of all these these kind of um, developments? Every one of us at my firm are doing this because we we love music and we're also interested in the business and legal aspects of music. So staying on top of things is not very hard when it's something yeah. that you're really interested in. I naturally read all the music press, I'm, I, I listen to podcasts, I, I consume a whole lot of that stuff and um, it's the same as, you know, if, if you said to someone who really loved the English Premier League, how do you stay on top of what's happening in the English Premier League? <laughs> well, it's pretty easy when you really love it, so uh, yeah. that's not been a challenge at all, really. Do you find, say, are you going into court much? We don't do any litigation or court work at all. All all we do is advise clients about their business. So we're negotiating deals. We're helping set up their structures to help them run their business of being a musician. We're negotiating record deals, publishing deals, sponsorship deals. We act for other industry players like record labels, festivals, that whether they're an artist or a festival or whatever, they're a small business or maybe a big business and they have all the legal and commercial challenges that any business has and we help them through those challenges. They just happen to be a business whose product is something that we find really interesting so we like doing the work. Nice. Do you ever take on business even though you're not into the music? Yeah, I think the two, uh, it's, re- it's really great if if you really love the music but what i want to do is do a really good job for people and help people who are musicians who are often not that interested in legal or commercial matters and just help them get to where they want to go so whether i personally listen to their music when i go home is irrelevant to me I just don't want to do work for people who I don't think are nice people. You know, I, I whether I listen to their whether I listen to their music is much less important than whether I think they're a good person or not. Have you sat in meetings where you've gone, we should do this, we should do this, and there's just been a moment where you've gone, oh, I'm not really into this person, I'm not really into this, and, and just sort of. There are certainly clients where we have walked away because we just think that it's too hard or it's. 
or, or they're asking you to do things that you just don't feel comfortable with and obviously I'm not going to share any specifics of that but of yeah course. we've certainly walked away from projects where we just didn't want to be involved but thankfully there are uh, exponentially more projects which we are very excited to be involved in than there are more negative experiences mm, very good Sorry, I've always hug our guests. So, so no, 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 you're fine. I, like, it's, it's just been really interesting to listen to such a unique perspective from probably an area of the industry where a lot of us think we know quite a bit about. Like, and it's just reinforcing to me how much fucking oversharing goes on online, man. Like, and a lot of it is so unfounded. So actually being able to listen to somebody who's been, A, in the industry as long as you have been in different, in, in different uh, elements of it, facets of it, has been really fascinating to me. I guess one thing I did want to ask you, jumping off from when we were talking about your work with younger artists and, and sort of the importance you saw in, in setting up like structures for them and their families to be supported... You know, I, I kind of wanted to talk about sort of culture of reality TV singing shows and stuff like that because I know I've definitely heard some horror stories over the years when I guess maybe more when Australian Idol, The Voice, X Factor, all of those things are becoming almost like a, a bit of a breeding farm for young singers to come through. You'd see them become really popular. The amount of winners who would go through these shows from the outside, looks like they get sold a dream and then a year later you never see from them again. I felt like that became a bit of a norm. Like, do you have any insights into how that kind of climate maybe changed the way or, or changed perspective to trying to set young artists up to, to be protected and supported legally? We've been involved in a lot of those shows and, and I, I act for a number of artists who have emerged very successfully from those shows. For example, yeah. Guy Sebastian, Jess Malboy, Vera Blue. Yeah. But of course, they are in the minority. Yeah. The thing that I would say to artists who are thinking about going on those shows is they've got to remember the purpose of the show is not to make people into stars. If they make someone into a star, that is a happy kind of benefit. The purpose of the show is to provide entertainment for X nights a week for 12 weeks. And that is the purpose of the show. And the show needs drama and heroes and villains. And it may not always present you in the way that you think you should be presented. And that is really tough. And, and yeah. some people have emerged from those shows and had really great careers and life-changing experiences. And some people have had far less positive experiences. And the thing is, there's a lot of perception, oh, you know, those deals are terrible and blah, blah, blah. To me, the deals that those shows offer are, are not any worse than the deals that an artist who was being approached by a major label and was not in a bidding war and didn't have any leverage and was a new artist, they're not any different to those deals, except that if you're an artist who is discovered in a pub and a label wants to sign you, then you can take as long as you like to think about it. And maybe you'll do a sure. management deal six months later and maybe you'll do a publishing deal 12 months after that and maybe you'll go on tour 12 months after that. But when you go on one of these shows and you make it to the top 20 or the top 30, you are asked to sign all of those agreements on the same week in a pressured situation. And, of course, you don't have to do it. 
We've had many experiences where artists didn't want to do it and so they can just leave the show and they can just yeah. go actually like nobody makes anybody do this but if you elect to do it you do it in a very pressured environment when you're on TV a lot and it's a really difficult circumstance yeah. in, in the same way that completely unrelated artists can get offered really bad record deals and you know not necessarily by majors but they don't have to do them and and often artists think that a bad opportunity is better than no opportunity i i, I could not agree less if you believe in your art and it's what you're compelled to do and you get offered an opportunity that's really bad you should say no to it and just keep doing what you're doing yeah. in the hope that a good one comes along because uh, if you say no to a bad opportunity, you just keep doing what you're doing. If you say yes to a bad opportunity, it can really ruin your ability to do a good opportunity should one come along. Super smart advice for anyone listening because I feel like I've had conversations like this multiple times over the years. I've had artists coming to me being like, oh, you know, we've been approached by potential management to do X, Y, Z. They've essentially laid out the deal. And I'm like, but you're already doing all of this stuff for yourself realistically a do you need that at where you are right now if you don't then that doesn't mean that you're not succeeding it means that you could you could just be diverting all of your funds and attention into yourself doing what you've already been doing and I feel like we see a lot of young artists again be sold their dreams throw all of their money at it and then they're stuck and then when it does come to something actually really cool coming along then it's then that's where it gets into a pickle so yeah, that insight is super important, I feel. I'm reading this little thing uh, you wrote on LinkedIn. Uh, you put up on LinkedIn about how you started a bedroom, share house in Stanmore, early Mac with a radio Birdman sticker, a fax machine sitting on a milk crate, no clear plan and plenty of time. I was working in the middle of each night by that screeching fax as the latest draft of the Hardons European license deal came in. I just left the world's biggest law firm to start the world's smallest law firm. It was thrilling. So you've got 12 people around you now. Claire Collins is a good buddy of mine. I think Cassosi probably know her as well. And yeah, as yeah. You, said, you, you sort of uh, said she should come on and become a lawyer with you guys. And, and she was seven months pregnant with her second child. She said to you, all right, Brad, I'm in. And you, and you said, what, did I did I invite you? What? <laughs> so I'm like, did I say that? Did I? Anyway, she's she's an absolute ripper. Tell us about how you've uh, selected your the people to work work with you over the years, and just any kind of specific anecdotal kind of stuff where you go, I chose Claire Collins because of this, and look at what she's done. Well, as, as they say uh, in the fairy tales, you've got to you've got to kiss a few frogs. Um, <laughs> I uh, I have a fantastic group of people. I've had fantastic people work for me and move on to other roles within the music industry and you, it's, it's really hard to employ people. Um, it's uh, when you do a job interview with someone, it's a, it's a, it's a dance and, it's, and, and you're, you're uh, taking a really short time to try and make a decision about someone that you'll spend a lot of time with. Sometimes I've got it spectacularly right, sometimes I've got it spectacularly wrong. Thankfully, more right than wrong, but all the people who work out, who turn out to be compatible, not literally work out at the gym, they really love music, they're smart, they're hardworking, they're nice. You know, if you can if you can tick those boxes, you'll generally be pretty good. And I know I've got a really fantastic group of people who work with me today, and like I said, plenty of alumni 
who have been really uh, great, including, you know, for example, Claire, is, or Claire's still there, but Chris Mond, who's a senior executive at Mushroom these days, worked for me, his first job in the music industry, and he's gone on to have a fantastic career. He may or may not be your boss, I don't know how that works. No, no, no. <laughs> we are all bosses, you know. That's how we do. Very, very cool. Uh, and we always ask on Hit Different, what is the music that has been hitting different for you, for you lately? Um, I'm always listening to, to, to new stuff and I'm always trying to find records that I love. That's, you know, one of life's great adventures. Um, there's a punk band from the US who I don't know where they're actually from called Prince Daddy and the Hyena. And I think their album is really fantastic. I've been listening to that a lot. It's kind of, it's got some hardcore elements. It's got some Beach Boy melodies. It's got everything that I love. There's also a kind of folky singer called S.G. Goodman, who I really love. Uh, she's really great. The first three songs off her new record are out, and I love all of those. So they're probably my favorite two records of the year so far, but there's uh, plenty more where that came from. This Prince Daddy and the Hyena sounds awesome. The, the Albany emo band takes a big swing with a concept album at the beginning of death. Reimagining Mall Emo, Mall Emo, never even heard that, how good, alt-rock, pop-punk, with a theatrical flourish, they all work surprisingly well. They sound hot damn. How about you, Sos, what have you been, what have you been uh, banging, slamming? I do this thing where I try and stay pretty abreast of local releases, but there are some others that like I completely miss the boat on, and then I have to come back to them and, and try and pretend like I've been up on them the whole time. <laughs> Telenova are a group who I've recently kind of become obsessed with. Again, I I saw them for the first time live at the APRA Awards probably, what, a fortnight ago now? They did a cover of Red Room by Hayes Coyote, which was off the chain. It was them and um, Mindy Mungwang, Timil Rojan, friend of the pod, Luke Howard as well, just fantastic musicians. And I know that they've come from... A number of different projects. Their music is just sick. It's been a while since a local band has really taken me like that. And I was just like, oh shit, like they're really good. Like I know that at the moment they're in the UK for The Great Escape. So hopefully that's going to have a bit of a bleed on effect for them. Um, and now that, you know, international touring is starting to become a thing again, I can really see them just hitting it over there. Um, but I really love them. I, I really hope that their Hiatus Coyote cover eventually gets some kind of release because it's friggin' worth it. Go look it up on YouTube. The the full performance clip is online and it's it's just, yeah, it's, it's so immersive. Notes for, for it's, the, it's beautiful. Podcast. They're having a, uh, definitely having a moment, Telenova. I've still not listened to any of them. I'm sure I've heard them on Triple R without knowing it's them from PBS. But I, I just love people talking about them. So that's, that's a real good one. Uh, the Smile Drop Today, being Friday, is the... Uh, uh, Johnny Greenwood, uh, Tom York, and Sons of Kemet drummer Tom Skinner record. And I think from what I've heard this morning, it's just like more kind of cool Radiohead, Adams for Peace, good claustrophobic music to really get down to and listen to Tom York and have those kind of Ortecra warp kind of elements running through it. So I've been blasting that. And there's a song you want to like absolutely lose your mind to. I've, I've been doing it with my two daughters in the car the last two days. I'm like, ready for this bit? They're like, oh, shut up, Papa. But Sotto Passaggio by Axel Bowman. I just dropped Vaughn, uh, played it on uh, Double Pounce and Triple R the other night, and I was just mess- messaging him, what the fuck is this track? It, the last sort of minute of the track gets increasingly chaotic, 
but it, then it keeps coming back on the fourth or the eighth beat, and then it finally sort of culminates in sort of parlays into this huge, big kind of stadium kind of rave. No, not rave, but just this really big dance moment where, oh, honestly, I'm playing a, a two corporate gigs this weekend. I'm going to hit them at both those gigs, and they, they, they're going to fucking love it. They're going to love it. Uh, what else was going to say? Two, oh, two more things that just uh, popped into my head. FBI Radio, you did a show for 10 years, Brett. Do you have it still... When did that? When was the FBI Radio thing for you? I was a uh, one of the original board members of FBI, both uh, both a board member for the campaign to establish FBI, and then a board member of the station. Um, and I did a comedy show from like the start of the station till about 2013, and and that was an extremely specific show uh it was a comedy show with the sydney dj stephen ferris and v- variety of music industry guests uh where all we did was talk about rugby league uh which is one of my great loves um <laughs> you might well ask a comedy show you talk about rugby league you might well ask, well ferris. you know it, it was, i should say it was an alleged comedy show but um the show still goes on i'm not on it anymore um uh, but that was a lot of fun um Maybe they only let me do it because I was an inaugural board member, but uh, <laughs> membership has its privileges. So uh, yeah, that was that was great fun. I'm going to be a member of any club that was it was the great Groucho Marx. I don't want to be a member of any club that it would admit me. Of... Yeah. So, but you know, yeah. obviously, uh, FBI is a wonderful station, a wonderful institution, and a great addition. Well, it's you know not a new addition anymore, but a great addition to Sydney's cultural life. You know, we we really lost something when when uh, Triple J went national and stopped having a local focus and um, and FBI has more than filled that gap. I think it's fantastic. Agree. Think local, act global. Terrific. Well, Brad, thank you so much for being on our show today. Little, little old podcast. It's so cool to get people. Yeah. Like our producers suggested you and we jumped at it. I've learned a lot. Learned a lot. And I've seen mm. your name around for absolutely Forever. Yeah. years. Yeah, so I'm very old. No. <laughs> um, so it's yeah, it is. It's, it really is like a, a special, a special thing to have someone like you give us some time. So we appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me. Much funnier in real life. There you go. So you see, oh you see no, no. You see, you see a Brett Oden solicitors. You're like, this dude's, this dude's funny as fuck. Anyway, that's that's anyway. I'm I'm really I'm petering out here now. But today we <laughs> talked we we talked about Kendrick Lamar's uh, new record. What's it called? Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers. Is that right? Yep. Yep. Uh, we also discussed something that's uh, super important to all of us, and that's talking about climate change and what we can all do. Hashtag Save Our Songs. There is no music on a dead planet. Please support that campaign if you can. And if you're thinking about getting any legal help, Brett Odin Solicitors is definitely uh, could be your first port, port of call. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, after listening to you talk for an hour, yeah, I think um, yeah, you've got your heart in the right place and stick up for the little guy, and you've done a fantastic job over 30 years. Congratulations on your recent... 30-year anniversary. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Nice to uh, talk to you both. Yeah, thank you. All right, listeners, go well and uh, look after each other. See you, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, 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 bye-bye.